This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Invisibility Trouble. Daniel Defoe. Spy. Manticores. And a robot saint. You are cute, you are cunning, you are fierce. And of course that is true of beloved Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff listeners, but what I'm talking about here are your stats in Magical Kitties Save the Day from our friends at Atlas Games. Magical Kitties Save the Day is a role-playing game for players of all ages. Play as a cat with magical powers. Save your human from corrupted robots, evil witches, money problems, and more. Even young children can learn to GM and run the game for their friends. A solo play option is available, too, for loner kitties. Magical Kitty Save the Day is kickstarting as of July 16th. You can learn more at atlas-games.com slash magicalkitties or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the gaming hut. But what's that? We're here in the gaming hut and we we can't see anybody. There's someone grabbing the Doritos and crunching them. There's someone thumping the miniatures around, but they're not here. Robin, something's invisible in the gaming hut, and frankly, a god among us doesn't approve of such behavior. A hint that I'll explicate with this question from Patreon backers, the Armchair Adventurers, who, by the way, provide a site. How how great is this, that we're upgrading the academic standards of all gaming with this? Yeah. In White Dwarf 33, Greg Stafford said that he didn't allow invisibility in his games as it breaks the drama and tension. Was he correct? Robin. Well, he was certainly correct that he didn't allow invisibility in his games. Yeah. I don't think that he was accidentally allowing invisibility and then was turning around. Ah, yes. dang it. Not again. But is this good practice is the question. Right. And uh, over on the Twitters, we got uh, more information uh, to go on. The Armchair Adventurers posted uh, this quote. Spells which I don't use in my campaign by Greg Stafford. And uh, good copy editing, uh, early 80s White Dwarf. Um Playing RQ as a referee has dominated my experience. And by the way, referee, that's a term I haven't heard since the early 80s. Ah, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Long time. Uh, I tend to view things on a larger scale than most player characters. At first, I figured the spell lists were good and simple, but playing experience made me change my mind. The spells of invisibility, concealment, and vision make it very hard for me to referee a decent game which includes drama and tension. They make it too easy to scout out in advance boring the players and me. Also, the wide-reaching ramifications of these spells are such that they would make the world too different from the one we would recognize easily. So we've got a a two-part objection, and uh, let's start with the first of those, which is the fact that these spells shortcut the uh, usual suspense that you associate either uh, with a fight or with uh, an intrusion. Now, uh, typically... Uh, the way that D&D handles invisibility, for example, is that all that gives you is a first shot. Right. So, you, you know, you get one advantageous attack, but then you turn visible, um, which uh, recognizes that, you know, true invisibility, as you see in the Invisible Man or or what have you, 
uh, is a big old problem. And it's one of those things that I think appeals very much to tacticians, the players who view the game as a puzzle that they want to solve. And the solution to the puzzle is to get the maximum benefit for minimal risk, which of course is what real people in actual fights right. very much want to do. Absolutely. Because the uh, thing you absolutely desire in uh, any sort of real-life dangerous situation is intense anticlimax. Right. You don't want anything to, to happen you, to... You prefer uh, the one-shot uh, kill, ideally, of someone far away. Yes, and <laughs> and ideally not you. Uh, but, of course, this tests the, the question of, you know, is role-playing a game? Or is, is that puzzle-solving the most important thing? Or is it supposed to be exciting and and uh, and fun and therefore uh, something goes wrong and you're in danger so i can uh would certainly never design uh any of these abilities so that they allowed you uh, anticlimactic easy victories because that's uh and, and it might be fun once right that if you have an invisibility power that is a one shot that you know one time only you're going to get to go fully invisible into a place and really do your worst then it becomes uh, the interesting question of what do we do with this ultra powerful single one shot resource? But, you know, if you had a TV show, if you had Mission Impossible and they didn't just have rubber masks that they pulled off, but in fact could turn invisible at will and just go around shanking and tasering people, um, you wouldn't stick around for that, uh, uh, very long. And I think certainly the number of players who uh, want the excitement of a fight that can go either way, uh, vastly uh, outnumbers the number of tacticians who'd be perfectly happy to run that Mission Impossible game where they're invisible and never lose. I, I feel like I should point out, however, that David McCallum, the great David McCallum, starred in an actual TV show in which he was the Invisible Man. So he went around and did Invisible Spy Stuff, and it got its drama not from how hard his spy stuff necessarily was, but from the fact that he was permanently invisible, and so he had this sort of psychological drama like Wells's character. And so when he would wear his face masks to break into stuff, it would itch him. And um, he couldn't connect with his wife because she didn't ever know where he was. And so there was all this other personal element, but he was invisible. He did do Mission Impossible stuff, and it was cool. Yes. If, if you want to be invisible in drama system, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs> and that works uh, uh, well, but uh, in a uh, in RuneQuest or in an F20 game, um, I think it is true that you really have to ramp down the effects of abilities that, that make stuff boring. Otherwise, you have to sort of crock it with sort of a invisibility kryptonite, right? That you remain invisible until such time as you think of an elephant. Right. And then you head into the palace, and guess what? There's pictures of elephants all over right. the place. But uh, that uh, seems like a lot of heavy lifting to do to avoid something that you could have avoided. Just or by. you're invisible to the guys around you, but it turns out you're super visible to the hunting Nazgul yes. to pick an invisibility weakness at random. Yeah, so you pick some other uh, ticking clock situation where you know, you're know you only invisible for so long. You don't know how long you're going to be invisible this time around. Or uh, you know certain things uh, interfere with it. Or you walk into a dust cloud. There's all sorts of ways that you can crock invisibility, but the fact that you have to do it every single time uh, hangs a giant lampshade on it. Right. So the uh, uh, second uh, point uh, that uh, uh, Greg raised all way back when is that uh, certain spells, if they exist, also radically change everything about uh, society, and you no longer even have a recognizable, make-believe, Ray Harryhausen, uh, pseudo-ancient uh, or pseudo-medieval uh, sort of setting. 
And once you go down that road, though, of Xing out uh, spells that would radically change society, I think you don't have spells anymore. Right? You've kind of spoiled everything because logically castles don't look like castles in a world with fireball and flight, right? I mean, nothing is fun anymore because now you you have to deal with this sort of roving archmage problem. And so the sort of answers, I guess, are we just don't talk about it. We're here to play D&D, not to have an extrapolated world, which God knows if you're playing D&D, you almost certainly are not there to have an extrapolated world. Or B, archmages are their own solution, and that's what all the NPC archmages are doing, is uh, busy maintaining the ward against invisibility around the king's house, or whatever. And so you, the traveling random archmages, are the only ones that can ever get up to any kind of trouble, and if you ever cross one of the big um, uh, power cables of society, the NPC archmage will Elminster you right in the face. Right, and that is actually an extrapolation that then solves the first problem, which is that Oh, well, invisibility to anywhere you want to bother being invisible. You can be invisible all you want down on the docks. Or in the dungeon. Yeah, in, in the dungeon and, you know, among the, you can invisible the poor all the time, all you want, but <laughs> any, uh, intrusion into anywhere important is not a sure success, but instead is an opposed role where, you know, if you're not better than the other magician, uh, you're not invisible. And not only are you not invisible, but you get seized up by the Nazgul or, or right. uh, what have you. Um, and uh, certainly there are uh, it's sort of interesting to look at all of the standard fantasy spells and uh, think of which ones would completely change society so that it would not only resurrection would, popping instantly to mind resurrection is the number one thing, right? That that totally changes everything about psychology and behavior and the people then become complete aliens if you fully extrapolate the fact that death is just an inconvenience or at least it's inconvenient to those who can afford to be brought back from the dead. Right. And if that's the case, certainly your adventurers probably can't afford to be brought back from the dead, even with their big haul of gold from, uh, uh, you know, if it's a limited resource, everybody who can capable of bringing back, back people from the dead has been carefully locked up by the power structure or, you know, more is the power structure point, is the power yeah. structure and yeah. other things that you, you know, you can't extrapolate a society from the list of spells that are interesting to adventurers is that really, in addition to, you know, if you could uh, bring pe people back from the dead, you would. And if you could make gold appear, you'd do that. If you had to guard your castles against dragons and uh, invisible people, you would do that as well. But also, most spells would be commercial in nature. That, uh, you know, there'd be much more demand for you to uh, be... And an agricultural magician who blesses the fields. Yeah. Uh, and those exist in RuneQuest for sure. Uh, then there ever would be for you to go down in, into the dungeon, right? You could make a lot more money. Um, if being able to work magic is a limited uh, resource that only a few people can do, you're going to have a nice cushy job, uh, maintaining the, the wall of water that, uh, uh prevents the ocean from washing Flooding in east. on the city yeah. or. Or, or I mean, I think happened. that RuneQuest kind of solves that problem a little elegantly with the fact that everyone's got connections to the, to the runes, potentially at least. And so, yeah, you, you're not actually good enough to be the fertility mage for your town. You have to go out and stab Ents in the face 
because you're, you know, you didn't make first string, kid. Sorry. Not everyone goes to the majors. Yes, definitely. The And you can uh, see why Greg would object to things that seem to break society. There's also no resurrection ability. You know, you can contact your ancestors after they go to the other side. But, mm-hmm. you know, occasional heroes uh, do come back from the other side uh, every so often and wreak horrible havoc because, mm-hmm. of course, yeah. uh Another important extrapolation that Greg did in his world of Glorantha is that you don't necessarily want to be around these big world-shaking characters who are uh, emulating the mythic gifts of the gods because uh, uh, guess what happens when when they uh, start to contend with each other? A river of blood. (laughs) And not the fun kind that provides iron and nutrients. The bad kind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess what we, I said earlier, if you're wanting a, an extrapolated fantasy world, you're not playing D&D. You're playing in Glorantha because that is an extrapolated fantasy world. And Greg, of course, has erected these barriers to keep it extrapolatable, which I think is part of why Glorantha keeps keeping on and has that uh, dedicated core. Not only that do they respond to the, to the mythic themes of the game, but also... If you think about Glorantha for, you know, more than 10 minutes, it doesn't completely fall apart, unlike literally every other fantasy world. So that, I think, keeps the uh, nascent engineer lurking in every uh, trad role-playing gamer uh, at bay a little bit. I mean, you, I, I think that makes sense, right? Right. And, in fact, there are even things that are available in this world that you sort of have to uh, literary conceit out of the picture yes. uh, in order to uh, maintain uh, suspense in typical action and, and sneaking uh, sequences. So, for example, tasers. Um, you will occasionally see uh, a TV show where someone tases somebody else to uh, knock them out. In the olden days, uh, you saw the same trope, except it was a uh, conk on the head that uh, just knocked you out and left you groggy afterwards, and there was no concussions and no brain injuries. You could very easily knock people on the head and knock them out. Now you do it with a taser. But in a role-playing game, uh, you maybe want some situations where you are allowed to easily overcome the uninteresting walk-on opponents, you know, the the guards at the door. You, you want the heroes to be able to take them out easily the way that they do in fiction, but you also want to make sure that the uh, they can't walk through the big fight at the end just by, you know, tasing Dr. Doom. Um, of course, he's got armor, but well, it's the, metal the, armor. The, the, the general point stands. And, of course, uh, the cell phone famously ruins all games of suspense or isolation or mystery because, oh, I'll Google it. Oh, look, yeah, no, it was written in the 14th century. Problem solved. <laughs> oh, no, I'll call the cops. Problem solved. Oh, no, I've got a light. You know, oh, I'll take pictures. You know, the the cell phone is famously fun ruiny, and there is somewhere on the YouTube's a beautiful clip of, uh, I think it's called No Signal. That is every single cheesy hack way horror movies in the probably two thousands got rid of cell phones, and just you know, just a constant barrage of oh, look at that, the evil cannibals parked where there's no Verizon network. What a bunch <laughs> of cannibals they are. Yeah. In fairness, they did eat everybody who came to put up a cell phone tower. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that does kind of track. Um, and, of course, the Coen Brothers' solution to that is to never make a movie uh, set after the adoption of the cell phone. But that sounds like a giant digression, Ken. It and you does, know what happens when we giantly digress? We uh, digress so much that it begins to intellectually resemble an ad.
In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The retinal scan and the background check that you had to undergo moments before listening to this segment inform you, uh, attentive listener, that you are once again standing in the top secret confines of the Tradecraft Hut. But this time around, I guess the uh, the retinal scan was probably just a... Uh, a, a check to see if you had the plague. Right. And uh, the background check was uh, going round to the club to see if you're the right sort of person because we're going to go historical again on the Tradecraft Hut. And uh, a running theme of the Tradecraft Hut is that nearly every titan of uh, English literature, uh, save, uh, I guess, for Jane Austen, turns out to have been a spy. Yeah. And certainly here to raise his hand and say, me too, I'm a spy... Uh, not the other guy to me too, is Daniel Defoe, author of Robinson Crusoe, uh, which according to one, apparently Robinson Crusoe is like the number two best-selling book of all time in English after the Bible. So, wow. Uh, good on you. Yeah. I guess lots of people are taking that as their desert island book. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to. Unusually, <laughs> though, uh, Daniel Defoe did his spying before he did his writing. Uh, and I guess uh, sort of in general, the reason that, uh, you know, if you are of a certain era, and you're educated enough to be a writer, they figure you're educated enough to be a spy. And if you're charming enough to convince your publisher to pay you some royalties, you're charming enough to be a spy. So this is a tradition that begins at least as early as uh, Christopher Marlowe and continues on into Roald Dahl and John le Carre and Dennis Wheatley and uh, Graham Greene. But uh, we're looking at Daniel Defoe. So uh, what was Defoe uh, uh, spying on, on his actual undercover mission? This wasn't just... You know, sometimes you get to be a spy just by traveling Europe and talking to other rich people. But he he did yes. some uh, serious incognito. Well, it was not quite incognito. I mean, he was in. I mean, he was not in Edinburgh, and that's that's the giveaway. He was sent to Edinburgh by Robert Harley, who was at that time the uh, Secretary of State for the North in the Court of England of uh, Blessed Queen Anne. Um, and you remember Robert Harley from the film The Favorite, where he is played by Nicholas Holt, far too young. But that's neither here nor there. Anyway, uh, at this point, he is not yet Lord Treasurer, as he would be in that um, uh, in that film. He has a somewhat less sumptuous hat and is ordering Daniel Defoe, who was working basically as a tame propagandist for the Whig Party, 
publishing a newspaper that was full of scurrilous gossip about noted Tories. He was he was the Fox News of his day. Well, I guess if he was if he was anti the Tories, he would have been the MSNBC of his day. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, Daniel Defoe was even at that time a a, a glad hand, as you say, uh, charming and literate. And so Robert Harley said, "What better person?" Uh, to send to Scotland to prepare the ground for the act of union by which Scotland and England would be joined forever and ever. The reason Defoe uh, pops to Harley's mind, not only is, uh, he, has he been a gifted propagandist for some time, but also he's a Presbyterian. And so he will be able to go up to Scotland and sort of mingle with all parts of society. In England, being a Presbyterian was kind of a legally dicey thing because you were not part of the recognized Church of England. But in Scotland, Presbyterianism is a recognized church, so you can walk about freely, head held high, causing the Enlightenment, all yes. that good stuff. To, to the extent that one holds one's head high in Edinburgh... Instead of looking Dura. Right. Um, yeah, but it's Edinburgh. It's not Glasgow. It's, it's not quite as Dura. Um, but yes, uh, he was in fact sent up by, uh, by Harley in 1706 and sort of acts as a, what you might call a desk analyst. The person who understands the situation in a country, because Harley, of course, famously said that he knew no more of Scotland than of Mars, and uh, which is, of course, an <laughs> ideal qualification for being Secretary of the State of the North. British government yep. has not changed a whit since yes. then. Annexing things that you don't know what they are uh, right. will come up again in history. Right. He goes up and um, uh, and begins to pal around with everyone in Scottish society, and at the time, he's just like, oh, no, I'm just here researching a book. It's a book on Scotland. I call it How Scotland Joined with England in Perpetual... You know, you know what? I'm still working on the title. <laughs> but uh, he uh, infiltrated, and infiltrated is, again, a strong word because he was still Daniel Defoe, glad-handing uh, author. And he would go into uh, Presbyterian circles, into the Scottish Parliament, uh, into business circles. He ran agents, including a silk merchant named Pierce, who's the guy who did get to go to Glasgow, poor bastard, and, and go amongst the Covenanters and sort of uh, take their temperature. He would sort of, according to one of his biographers, like drop big hints that he was a spy, but I guess never say it out loud because later on, someone wrote the famous line, a spy has come among us, but he did not say so lest he be torn to pieces by an enraged mob. And it was that sort of um, uh, propaganda that Defoe was up there to actually start because the popular will of Scotland was probably not pro-active union, but if he could cast the popular will as a bunch of maddened mob people driven crazy by Jacobinism or Jacobitism, I'm sorry, then you could dismiss what the Scottish people thought because they were just enraged by a mob. They were off their heads. And the sober business class Presbyterians who wanted to be able to invest in America were all pro-union and they're really the people that count. Or at least that's what Daniel Defoe wrote back to Robert Harley. So uh, do we feel that he was in fact in physical danger, as he suggested, or was his physical danger in fact uh, part of his propaganda? I mean, I think he could have put himself in physical danger. I mean, there certainly were riots. There certainly were covert murders back and forth in Scotland, you know, over the last, you know, well, several hundred years, but certainly in this period as well. But again, uh, the biographer of uh, Defoe points out that when he d would write these reports of, of uh, his firsthand reports of seeing uh, the riots, he's using the same techniques that he uses in Journal of the Plague Year, which he did not, in fact, see uh, everything that he wrote in that novel. So he's sort of 
bringing a novelist's eye to his reports, less a um, uh, cold, hard uh, realist's eye to his reports. And so his notion of physical danger, again, it, it could very well have been real. There were legitimately mobs, but did Daniel Defoe justify an expense account and make himself look like a hero to his ignorant boss? I ask you, would a writer do such a thing? <laughs> no, because, of course, the reason I ask if he's in any physical danger is that the next question, uh, as it is often in, in our various huts, is how do we make this into a scenario? So right. uh, on the surface, uh, the idea of uh, the campaign for the union between uh, Scotland and England sounds like it's something that will make some people rich and other people poor, uh, but how do we make it? A, a cause for excitement and suspense for a group of player characters, and what are those player characters doing? Uh, is it more fun and sympathetic to be uh, with Defoe or opposed to him? I think that the fun thing that you can do with Defoe is that he goes up a good Presbyterian, he starts infiltrating the Presbyterian church, and he discovers the mystical substrate of Scotland while he's up there, and which mystical substrate you can leave as a surprise for your players, but your choices include the secret commonwealth of the fairies, very much described by a eminent Presbyterian, the Templars, who, as we all remember, uh, built Rosslyn Castle to hide in code, or as the Templars called code, enormous sculpture, the fact that they had uh, secretly been to America and hidden the Templar treasure there, or the witches, which, of course, uh, King James attempted to stamp out to the best of his mewling little ability, but, of course, you can't stamp out a good witch. Ask anybody. Ask the witches, for gosh sakes. They'll be like, oh, no, yes, we were badly persecuted, but we survived. We're cool. We still ran everything. It's awesome. Uh, so he could stumble on any of those things. He could stumble on secret fairies. He could stumble on Templars, or he could stumble on witches, or he could stumble on all three, uh, depending on how complex you want your game to be. And if you are going up against uh, those sorts of forces, I think, by and large, having the player characters be sympathetic to the Union sets a sort of modernity versus weirdness or uh, civilization versus messed up stuff attitude that you can use. And of course you can make the Templars bad as opposed to the sort of secret heroes that they became in 19th century anti-clerical fiction or faction, I guess I should say. But alternatively you could have your, uh, the, your players be the resistance to, um, uh, uh, to union and be you and be questioning, Oh, do we use the fairies and the witches? We are good Presbyterians. We don't like either, but, you know, whatever. Uh, Templars are Catholic. I don't know if I like them. There are witches, of course, and, and fairies in both England and Scotland. So right. it could be the case that uh, this is a proxy war uh, between uh, uh, different tribes of fairies. Right. The English fairies want to uh, establish dominance over the uh, Scots fairies or uh, a, uh, a battle between different uh, witches' covens. And the advantage of doing that is that the player characters then get uh, access to the cool powers and stuff instead of just being the Mulder and Scully who are fighting the paranormal that they get to have spells and, and so forth. And uh, uh, you can then uh, decide again whether it is uh, which side they want to be on. I guess you can ask them, do you want to be in favor of uh, the Union or, or again it? If you're again it, you know you're swimming up the tide of history. And if you, you win, you're going to create an alternate history. Right. And so then... Uh, you know, you either start out in league, uh, with the supernatural forces on the one side or the other, or you discover them in the course of it, and then you kind of ally yourself, uh, uh with them. And so, uh, you can be in this scenario, uh, one of the players, 
hopefully one who shows up regularly can be mm-hmm. Defoe. And he thinks he's just going up to uh, uh, seem trustworthy to fellow Presbyterians. But then uh, he discovers, uh, you know, the what's really going on underneath the surface and uh, 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 what the uh, the stakes are. And uh, it could also be that there's a, a fight between the two groups over who gets to access the the, the magic of the Americas. So you could right. uh, uh, throw that in, in as well and get a little bit of global geo supernatural politics in there. And of course you can have a mixed party where most of them are spies uh, like Defoe. So Defoe's the face man. Pierce is the uh, infiltrator. And then you've probably got a early 18th century, you know, sort of a, a special op. And then, Another guy's a fairy, and he's like, uh, you know, can we trust him? Is he on our side? We don't know, and that and that gives you that spy feel of, well, we have our assets, yeah, but we don't know how far we can trust them to not betray us. I have and, this magic mask I can put on and resemble other people, and then right. pull off the mask. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's like, yeah, he's using his fairy glamour for England, we think. Yeah. Um, and, and so the, and even the fairy might be like, man, I don't know. I mean, Scotland's pretty great, but I did swear an oath and fairies have to live by their oaths or else we're just people. And so I, I think you can have a lot of fun with a mixed party, assuming that you could either solve or hand wave the problem of, uh, perceived imbalance where one player character has, uh, magic powers and the other characters don't necessarily. But I think if you make each, uh, magic power sort of magic in its own sphere so that the badass is more badass in a fight than anybody else. And Defoe is able to charm literally anyone by buying drinks and telling crazy stories about prostitutes. I guess you can't charm the general assembly of the Presbyterian church that way, but most other people, um, just buying drinks. And so the, uh, you could, you could have that sort of mixed party and then have the question of loyalty pop up. And then maybe the, the big sort of reveal is, oh no, it's Pierce that's actually in league with the, with the Presbyterians of the West, the wild covenanters who don't want any part of this union baloney. And then he's the traitor and, and then the fairy has to, you know, bring him in. All kinds of possibilities. Speaking about uh, boundaries between, uh, forbidden lands, it's time for us to cross the boundary of this exciting commercial message and, uh, see what exciting land awaits for us on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive Through. 
Seal this podcast from incurable rust monster damage by joining such Patreon backers as Darren Dumay, Alexander Zimmerman, Anderson Todd, Chris Farrell, and Joe Webb. The mysterious growls emanating from the cave, the strange footprints. This could be the cryptid hut, but no! I smell experience. We are not in the cryptid <laughs> hut. We are in the monster hut. Our brandest newest hut, or maybe it's not our brandest newest anymore, and it is covered with monster fur now, because they shed like anything. But within the monster hut, we are going to explore perhaps my favorite monster, the manticore. Normally, this is where Robin throws, explain the manticore to me, but I guess I'm throwing it to Robin in a crazy, mixed-up, upside-down world. Right. Uh, well, I'm sure we both have a number of uh, manticore facts at our disposal, but the the manticore, which has the head of a person and the body of a lion and uh, has uh, uh, wings, usually, and also a uh, a tail, and I think the big debate, uh, which we'll get to later, is what kind of manticore tail do we prefer? Um, also, the the wings, question mark. Another strong argument. Yes, uh, w- winged or not. Um, and so uh, the uh, manticore begins in Persian culture as the Murthakuar, uh, which is old Persian for man-eater. Um, and the thought is, among fun runners, that the uh, the Manticore is just a misapprehended tiger. Yes. The first fun runer, the funnest ruiner of all, Pausanias, <laughs> yeah. straight up says, it's a tiger. I'm inclined to think it's a tiger. It's a tiger. Oh, you're going to ask about the porcupine tail? That's nonsense. Indians are scared of tigers. They just make things up. I'm sorry. I have to go ruin stories of oracles and gods now. I'm Pausanias. Right. I'm describing Greece. Right, but... Fortunately, others responded by going, oh, you're right. That means there must be, in addition to a manticore, there must be a man-tiger. Yeah. And uh, we can split those off as if they knew that centuries later, people would need all sorts of minor variations between different monsters to justify padding out their uh, RPG bestiaries. And, and of course, the word manticore itself is a misprint because it was the marticore originally, as uh, the Persian indicates, and became the manticore when someone mistranscribed Aristotle. So... That's the fun part right there. Also, you have the Marticora, the Manticora, the Marticoras, the Mardcora, the Mantichor, the Manicora, the Martiora, and on and on and on. And so, uh, Pliny and, and then later Dante depict the Greek giant Geryon as a Manticore. And of course, the D&D uh, fans know that Geryon is a completely different thing in the D&D mythos. It's a, uh, one of the many uh, devils. And uh, the way that you can tell a D&D manticore from a regular manticore, and therefore a D&D-derived manticores, is that the D&D one has a lion's head. And I think that is pretty much exclusively because... And a human face. Right. Of. But still, he's still got the bitey part. Right. Uh, he's still got the lion's jaws because uh, the job of a D&D monster is to have a bunch of different attacks. And the manticore who just sort of tells you boring stories with his uh, face is not as uh, much fun as one who bites your face off of its face. Even pre-D&D, uh, the manticore has a triple row of teeth in his human face. So that's not nothing. He's got, like, shark m- teeth in his mouth. So uh, what is it, Ken, that makes uh, the manticore your favorite? I mean, I like the I like everything about it. I, first of all, I like that it's uh, sort of a more obscure monster. I like the the sort of 
plasticity of the description, as you point out. Does it have a lion's head or a people head? Does it just have a people face? It's got three rows of teeth. Do its tails shoot spines? Do they don't? Are they wings? What's its damn name? Um, I like that it has sort of a, it has a musical voice. And so that immediately gives it sort of a level of interest and culture that your standard, uh, like a boulette doesn't have or something that just sort of lurks by the road and jumps on you. I, I like that it has this sort of medieval, almost biblical symbolism. Uh, I, I like a lot about it. I, I like that it, it goes deep into uh, into classical mythology, but it's also you know super modern. I mean, your buddy Robertson Davies, of course, you make makes it sort of a a symbol of what would what, what would the word be? Sort of uh, sterile intelligence, greedy intelligence. What's the what's the symbolism there in in modernist manticore? Um And also, uh, it's a symbol of individuation in Jung. It's uh, it's a mm-hmm. whole bunch of different. Uh, parts that don't go together but do go together and therefore is a, a metaphor uh, for the uh, at least one version of uh, human experience and for the the solution of, of a puzzle. So it's sort of uh, a sphinx-like as well in that sense. And another fun thing about the manticore is that it was on the arms of the Earls of Huntingdon. And you may remember that the Earls of Huntingdon are traditionally the people that Robin Hood comes from. So already that's fun because if you've got, oh, let's see, he can shoot quills at a far distance and he has a musical voice and he's uh, uh, he looks like a fun person, but he has triple row of teeth. That sort of makes Robin Hood fun too, by extension. The notion that Robin Hood and the manticores are all tangled up. And of course, the uh, uh, Barons of Hastings have the manticore on their shield. And of course, the Hastingses get up to all manner of fun in, that's right, India. So you have uh, the heraldic manticore going back to the source of the original manticore. Uh, I guess, I don't know if we said at the beginning that the Persian lore is a Persian lore, not of something that was in Persia, but a lore of what was across the Indus River in that crazy, magical, fantasy, far-off land, India. And uh, that for Warren Hastings to go back to India and uh, try and conquer it while wearing the Indian monster par excellence on his stationery, that's kind of fun, too. Uh, so uh, back to the tail issue. Uh, it's pretty obvious why the uh, porcupine tail that shoots uh, quills or in some versions of D&D iron spikes, because uh, you got to penetrate that armor, is more attractive as a fantasy monster that you've got to fight, because that gives him a missile weapon. Yep. He's already got a bite and two claws, so give him a missile weapon. The uh, the Manticore clearly is a mini-max creature that was originally mm-hmm. built with a point-build system where it's like, let's let's add every attack. Uh, in uh, George R. R. Martin, Manticore poison his, uh, is, a, is a big deal poison, although uh, no Manticores appear on stage, so you can assume it's just, you know, a well-branded regular a poison, not one harvested right. from uh, from manticores. Are you on uh, Team Iron Spike, or do you want to go for the uh, the more uh, not classical? I would say because, of course, both versions are tested in classical sources, but uh, sort of a, uh, a somewhat more uh, lower fantasy version of, of the creature. I, I, I like the idea that it's just like a, a javelin. That it's like a super. I mean, the tip of it is super hard, like a porcupine's quill is super hard. So it can still puncture old leather armor and whatnot. Maybe it bounces off your cool Alexander the Great hoplite shield. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't mind losing the iron spikes to keep the the, the missile weapon. And the uh, the poison uh, uh, option allows you to have someone who's struck down by the tail of the manticore and then 
uh, is uh, lost to fever, and then you have to go and find the antidote right. uh, to the manticore uh, poison. An- another of my favorite manticores that I put into the uh, 13th Age bestiary when I wrote the manticore into it is the sort of uh, antlion manticore that lives in a pit, and you stumble into the pit, and then he eats you. But I figured, since he's already mostly lion, let's have him you know, bury himself in sand, and then... Uh, you you walk up there and you start sinking to the quicksand and then he stabs you with his scorpion tail. So that's your scorpion manticore is for close up ambush fighting. Whereas your uh, porcupine uh, throwing quills manticore can be your sort of uh, standard uh, open field encounter manticore. Right, because of course the the real F twenty answer to is the monster A and B is there's two subtypes. Yes, there's one of each. Yes. And by the way, there's also one with a molten tail. Yeah. The, the multicore. <laughs> the, the other cool thing about the manticore, of course, is that it is a, uh, clearly non-humanoid, monstrous, intelligent creature, uh, who you can go and talk to. And, uh, unlike the Sphinx, uh, the Sphinx has a shtick that he has to do. He has to ask you a bunch of dumb riddles. And, uh, we all know what we feel about riddles on this show. Yeah. But the Manticore is sort of more up for grabs. So he could, uh, he can negotiate with you. He can offer, uh, to, uh, point you in the direction of, uh, you know, you don't want to pick on me, uh, with my, uh, tail here dripping venom ready to melt your eyeball and poke it out. And, you know, yeah, maybe you can take me out, but I'd, uh, take a couple of you out first. But, uh, you know, I, uh, happen to know the back door. Uh, to the ogre cave over there, and I'll give you the the direction. You can go sneak attack them all you want. Uh, just uh, just leave me alone. And uh, of course, and he's he got that musical voice that's so charming. Yeah, and uh, because he's also a tiger, he can sound like George Sanders from Jungle Book, <laughs> like Shere Khan. Yeah, so that's so the the Manticore is very versatile and uh, a nice uh, break from your uh, your sort of standard uh, monsters, and has that cool mythological sense to him. And it's a uh, not originally uh, Greek mythology, as one might assume, so it uh, uh, has uh, a fun uh, pedigree as well. So, uh, do you have a manticore in your uh, ongoing 13th Age game? Uh, my 13th Age players have not yet gotten to India. The whole game is about them going to India, and oh yes, when they get to India, there will be manticores aplenty. But I'm saving my manticores for when they get to India and can meet them on their home turf as is historically accurate. If they if they dealt with the... Um, I think I may have mentioned that there was one in Ptolemy's uh, menagerie. Uh, the King Ptolemy uh, II of Egypt famously had a menagerie to which he brought animals from all over the world. So I, I may have mentioned, oh, there's a manticore in there, but I didn't make a big deal out of it because they showed little or no in, interest in going to the menagerie and letting the monsters out so that they could fight them. That was probably smart. And are your uh, manticores involved in politics and society, or are they uh, hanging around in caves with their treasure? They will be, they will be, um, not to, not to spoil our things, but they will have a role in the ongoing plots against the Olympian gods. They are, they are figures of sort of primordial evil, uh, in, in my campaign mythology, in, in the Shakespeare game that I ran when I was playing Hero Quest. And it was set in Covent Garden and Drury Lane, two competing Shakespearean theaters that were using the power of Shakespeare to enter the green realm, which is what we called the hero realm. Uh, Craig, uh, Craig's character was a manticore, it turned out, and uh, heir to the throne of England if you killed enough people in the way. And one of the sort of big decisions was, is this a tragedy or not? Does he fall victim to his tragic flaw of being a manticore? And the answer was yes. So that put a real great spin on the on the final act of the game. But... If I if they showed up in India and the Manticores were all good and helpful, 
uh, and just, oh no, we're advisors to King Ashoka, the, the great Buddhist emperor. Why do you ask? The players wouldn't stand for it, and frankly, neither would I. I think manticores yes. need to be up to something. We all know what Chekhov said about putting a manticore on the table in the first act. Exactly. He said, watch out for the triple row of teeth. Uh, there are manticores in Glorantha as well, so I've uh, added one to the big rubble. Good. Uh, the uh, conceit often in Glorantha is that the things that you uh, think of as monsters are no more monstrous than you are. And uh, guess what? You're, you may be plenty monstrous yourself. So this manticore is a, is a bandit leader uh, in this uh, area of the ruins, and he's looking for treasure like anybody else, and he's smart, and he guides his uh, uh, group of uh, uh, freebooters. So uh, not a, a, a nice person, not a shrinking violet, but also uh, not an avatar of evil, but just uh, yet another figure in there uh in this area that you have to uh reckon with and you're just as likely to uh, uh ally with him or get information with him as you are to want to uh, fight him for whatever cool thing that uh, you're looking for and uh, he happens to have so we've already uh teased uh that the manticores are on the other side of a ridge so uh uh, but we've already talked about manticores, so we're going to have to see what's on the other side of this ridge, because the manticores are on this the, side. The non-manticore side, ideally. Yep. <laughs> Let's get away from these manticores, I think is what I'm saying, and get to the other side. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to shoot him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. This time around, Patreon backer Gene Ha uh, wants to know what dread future you avoided by doing something weird, and the something weird is as follows. I'm assuming Ken is behind having a robot saint consecrate a medieval Spanish king before he crowned himself? The question is why. Uh, and uh, talk about... Uh, people brought their citations this week, mm -hmm. uh, and Gene's uh, citation is from Teofilo F. Ruiz's Spain's Centuries of Crisis, 1300 to 1474, and uh, the quote goes like this. In 1332, in a peculiar ceremony... The king, uh, who is Alfonso the Eleventh uh, of Castile, was knighted by the mechanical arm of a statue of St. James on the main altar of the cathedral in Santiago de Compostela, anointed on the shoulder and crowned himself at the great royal Cistercian monastery of La Huelgas de Burgos amidst great popular festivities. Now, the history of 
uh, people crowning themselves instead of letting that pesky interfering pope do it is, uh, I think, uh, fairly well established. Uh, but bringing in an automaton to do the job is uh, somewhat unusual, as Gene points out. So do you want to start off by uh, describing the uh, the dread future you avoided, or is there another way uh, into your uh, Time Incorporated case file? I mean, I think you have to sort of begin by saying that this is the 14th century. Uh, the specific crowning happens, as uh, I believe Gene cites, in 1332. So... That's where we are. We are in the, not just the wars against the, the Moors in the south of Spain, but also the sort of back and forths between Castile, Aragon, and Portugal. At this time, I believe all of them are run by someone named Alfonso, which cannot have been easy for the Moors to say nothing of anybody else. Um, and so Alfonso the 11th is a, uh, he's a young king and the pretty much first thing that he does is execute all of his political opponents by torture, including his uncle. So he is no lightweight, this guy. Um, he was born, uh, basically uh, as the, as the regent and then, uh, had spent his whole life as, as, uh, as the regent. His, his dad died like the year after he was born. So he grew up in this sort of hot house of political power. And the reason that he's knighted by a mechanical arm is because no one else, he, he can't allow anyone else to have the prestige of knighting him. And it was, uh, I don't know, I don't want to brag, but it was my suggestion that rather than not be knighted at all, that he have the greatest knight in the world, St. James of Compostela, knight him in the form of a robot arm. And Teofilo Ruiz, who, by the way, mentions this in every one of his books. I, I, I went sort of searching around uh, on this and... The only place you're going to find this mechanical arm is in a book by Teofilo Ruiz, but he's written like four of them and it's in all of them. So anyway, <laughs> there is an, a note that the particular mechanical sculpture had come into Castile only in the first half of the 14th century. Well, we're already in 1332, so there's not that much of the first half of the 14th century. And I can tell you that uh, since I put it there, uh, yes, that is the, 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 the robot St. James was there. And the reason was in order to strengthen the hand of Alfonso XI, because as I may have indicated by the torture murder of his uncle, um, he was not a guy given to great impulse control anyway. And if he had been shoved off the throne by the other nobles, well, first of all, that's it for Castile. Uh, the, the Moors are still probably toast anyway, just demographically speaking. But without Castile, you don't get, I don't know, the discovery of America or Don Quixote or Velasquez or all kinds of great stuff. I'm pro Aragon myself, but Castile is a necessary part of this situation. So, um, he has to stay on the throne long enough to, uh, bear an heir and, uh, continue the, 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 the Royal house of Castile and provide stability, uh, to, uh, the Spanish throne. That's basically the, the great danger is that Spain, basically comes apart in civil war again, and you don't have that uh, counterweight in Europe, much uh, less the great flowering of 16th century Spanish culture that any civilized person should want to keep around. One of the interesting things about, as you note, the uh, self-crowning, which he did at a, a Cistercian monastery nearby, uh, not in Compostela, and the self-knighting is to prevent the church from having any claim over 
uh, Castile. And again, that's the sort of thing you want to encourage, given that once the Spanish throne gets weak enough to give into the church, you have the Inquisition forcing the conversion of all the Jews and other horrible Inquisition-y behaviors. Um, so you want to put that off as long as you possibly can. So uh, this is a case where in order to keep Castile going, you have to uh, deal with an MBS class murder and royal. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, not your favorite kind of person. So not really. how did you uh, manage to negotiate your way around this uh, volatile, uh, blood-simple ruler, and how close did you come to being uh, clapped uh, in the torture chamber? Well, if I'd been idiot enough to stick around for his death, I probably would have been killed instantly. Um, his long-suffering, and I mean this legitimately, Maria of Portugal, the daughter of King Afonso of Portugal, basically ignored for his mistress, Eleanor, and the instant that uh, King Alfonso dies, Eleanor is arrested and killed. Uh, so that's the kind of uh, behavior that you get out of your better Spanish royal. The best part is, first of all, you don't have to drink a king under the table if he's 12. You can just bring him Snickers bars. And if you say, you know, this magical uh, substance, it comes from a land across the sea that your descendants will discover if you live long enough to have descendants and if you don't screw it up. That's a great way to get on the good side of a of a otherwise stormy royal scion uh, inclined to torture murder. Um, again... You can't torture murder the only guy who has Snickers bars. That's not cool. Uh, so we're looking at sort of a Joffrey figure here. Exactly. Now, I want to advocate, I guess, on, on behalf of, of Gene and also our listeners, I, I don't think we've quite got to the nub of why a robot arm. Oh, first of all, I'm surprised you of all people have to ask why a robot arm. Because it's awesome. Well, like I said, I'm a stand-in for the listener. <laughs> right. Um, uh, uh, because robot arms are awesome. And also, if you've got a robot uh, a robot of St. James of Compostela, Santiago de Compostela, you might as well get as much use out of it as you can, because then you can amortize it across different uh, case files, right? I don't have to pay for the whole robot out of one out of one mission budget. So you took the robot back with you into the time stream, which perhaps explains why it is attested only in the works of a single author. Well, the uh the the the, the robot I left at the at the monastery of uh in Burgos because I was done with it. I'd used the robot before uh, so I needed the robot to uh, miraculously appear in the year 834 or perhaps 844. I didn't keep a lot of good records because battle. And uh, at the Battle of Clavijo, which uh, fun ruiners will say never happened, but I was there. And not only did it happen, it had a <laughs> robot. They'll say there weren't any robots there. So yeah, what, right. So that's obviously now who now who needs some citations, Robin. So, yes, uh, I needed to have a robot St. James to inspire the, the kings of Asturias and uh, to, to, to fight back against the, the invasion. And, well, you know, you got a robot. Might as well use it. Uh, yeah, that's just parts of money. Uh, how awesome is that? I'm not going to walk around fighting. That's that's a great way to be stabbed in the face. But if I have a robot that can do that, well, that's much simpler. And so, what what then ha- happened to the robot? I mean, I took I took the the motor and the I think I took the positronic brain. I hope I did. And <laughs> go to the monastery in Burgos, um, uh, the royal monastery they call it, uh, because it's where the king gets crowned. Uh, you can see the robot there, but uh, he won't come to life and kill you. Probably. He's no longer a robot, just a, a regular yeah, just old a statue. Such big me- mechanical statue. And. Uh, did you uh, learn anything uh, while you were there that came as a surprise to you? Um, I mean, well, you, you learn all kinds of things whenever you're around. First of all, you learn that uh, some people prefer Snickers to Three Musketeers. 
I would not have thought that was possible, but that was King Alfonso. There's a reason they don't call him Alfonso the Wise. I'll just say that. But well, I learned all kinds of fun stuff about uh, the the mysteries of the of the Spanish uh, temple, but I can't really get into that on, in this program. And um, I learned how to make robot arms work without the rest of the robot, which is just handy knowledge. Uh, well, I think that's uh, definitely a, a full uh, report on your activities. And uh, uh, I think that uh, Time Incorporated, uh, since you uh, spread the budget of the robot over uh, several different missions, I think they, uh, they consider themselves uh, satisfied uh, with that because uh, some past missions, they got to say, have gone a little over budget. And, uh, you know, it's, you would think that they just have an unlimited budget that they can just keep sending you back to like the year before the gold rush. But, uh, you don't love panning for gold. I, don't I think. do not love panning for gold. That is hard work. I mean, they can send me to the year before the stock market crash. I like sitting around in New York and drinking. But then you have all the trouble of buying all of those expensive, uh, items that will still be of value and then parking yeah, them on it's the, not, it's not a good look. Yeah. You've got to, you know, even if you're just buying, gold ingots. Those are heavy. You can put your back out. Well, on that note, uh, I think we can then uh, declare uh, yet another episode successfully performed. Uh, yes, I see the robot arm is waving at us and is agreeing uh, that this has been uh, yet another exciting episode with multiple citations. How many other podcasts have multiple citations, people? Very few. They're Very mostly few. unsupported. They, yes. they would have a little citation required tag if they were on Wikipedia, but not us. So uh, join us a, a week from now for a, another exciting episode with or without extensive footnotes. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from the toxic tail spikes of underfunding alongside such Patreon backers as... Ludovic Chabant. Phil Groff. Simon Proctor. Patrick Joint. And Adam Grotjohn. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. I have ordered four dozen of our latest design, Valhalla Cat. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin DeLaws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.